Hey everybody, Josh Peck here. Um, so if you watch any of my other videos, then uh, you probably already know what this is all about. Um, I have all this stuff set up because we had Gary Stearman out for a really cool project that I'm excited to be working on. Um, and I'm dressed like this because uh, just recently, and turns out a lot of this stuff happens on weekends, but that's okay. Uh, just recently, I um, ended up recording myself for, for something as well. And I don't want to get into too much detail about what that project is. Uh, I will say that it'll, it'll come through Skywatch. But um, here for, for this show, um, I haven't had a chance to put my set back up yet, but I also didn't want to um, not you know, record things on, on, you know, my, uh, uh, the time that I have available. So <laughs> I wanted to at least do something, even if, um, even if I'm dressed up a little bit and the set isn't set up. And, uh, so anyway, um, if you follow any of my other videos, then, then th that stuff you probably already know. And then some of, some of what we're going to talk about in the beginning here might be review, uh, but that's okay because I've actually, since the the last time that we've talked about this, I've added a lot of uh, new information. Some recent things have come to light. Um, but I wanted to talk about the return of Jesus. Uh, I wanted to talk about how a lot of times we're taught that he's going to return in the fall. And that very well could be that uh, he's going to return and fulfill the fall feasts. But um, I actually think a good case could be made that he's going to return in the spring. Um, and some of this has to do with some research I've been involved in with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, also, like I've said before, sometimes I like doing videos like this based on things that I'm writing at the time because it helps me process my thoughts. It helps me uh, see where some gaps might be. It basically helps me write a better book or write a better presentation or do a better video or, you know, whatever I'm involved in at the time. So uh, having feedback from you guys would really help out a lot. So if you've been following any of my work for um, the, you know, the past year or so, um, then you probably already know quite a bit about, you know, the Essene calendar, Moedim cycles, the festival cycles, uh, specific festival days. Um, and I'll go through some of that, but uh, I wanted to take a fresh look at some prophetic passages uh, that are in the Bible and see if we can bring a new insight uh, to this. So this is going to be based uh, primarily on the Bible, but we're getting some stuff from the Dead Sea Scrolls too that seem to, to correlate uh, because we're using the Dead Sea Scroll calendar. And if you're interested in checking that out, it's dsscalendar.org. Um, so like I've said before, we, we typically view prophecy in light of the festivals, the Jewish festivals, by recognizing that Jesus came to fulfill the spring festivals in his first advent and then when he uh, returns he'll fulfill the fall festivals that's at least the uh, assumption that's kind of what we think and it's a good assumption there's a lot of good reason to believe that it still very well could be could be that uh, but we've also been given a tribulation time frame of about seven years from the book of Daniel um, well not really about it is exactly seven years <laughs> from the book of Daniel uh, and the last Roughly the last half of the tribulation, which is sometimes called the Great Tribulation, has been described as three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days, 1260 days. And we get that from the book of Revelation. That's typically like the broad layout of the 70th week from chapter 9 of the book of Daniel has been interpreted. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars, uh, prophecy experts, people way smarter than me <laughs> have uh, come to that conclusion. Now, 
Jesus still very well may come back to the earth in the fall and fulfill the fall feasts immediately upon his return, but I think that there's another possibility here involving spring feasts, again, like a repeat of the spring feasts. So why would he do that? Why would he uh, come and fulfill the spring feasts again? Um, he already fulfilled the spring feast, so would, wouldn't it make sense that he would come back and fulfill the fall feast? You know, of course, certainly, but that's not the only possibility on the table. So in, in, in this video, and we'll see how far we get, because I actually have a lot of information here. I might break this up into a couple different videos. We'll see. Um, but I wanted to re-examine some of the passages used to support uh, a fall return of Christ in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and the Essene calendar to see if there might be another, um, maybe more complete way of viewing the spring and fall feast paradigm. I also wanted to stress that I am doing this in complete and total respect for those who teach the fall feast fulfillment view. I still very much consider that a strong possibility, so I don't wish to insult or disregard it by, you know, providing a different possibility. I just want to widen our view so that we can look at all possibilities, see which one um, builds the strongest case. So in a spirit of love and respect, I'll do my best to do just that throughout this video and maybe another video, depending, again, how far we get. Um, so again, some of this is going to be review, but that's okay. Even if you've heard me talk about this before, I've added some new things since then. Um, because I, I did do a, a video based on some of this and in doing that video, it helps kind of process my thoughts. And so I was able to go back and, and kind of rework some things. Uh, and so we can begin our re-examination of these prophetic texts with, uh, chapter 12 of the book of Daniel. So what would, would actually really help me out is if you have your Bibles with you, um, pull them out and open them because, um, uh, for, for these videos, usually I like to put the text on the screen, and as of right now, I don't know if I'm going to have time to do that, uh, you know, because I'm recording right now. I always edit in post. I edit after I record. So at that time, if I have time, I might put the text up on the screen, but if you don't see text, uh, then I didn't have time to deal with it. So... Um, uh, again, I only have weekends available for this uh, kind of stuff. So, uh, so if I if I don't have time for it, just get get out your Bibles and you can just follow along with me. Um, or you, if you're watching this on your phone, you can open up a Bible app or something. But uh, I'm just going to read it, and you can either just listen or you can follow along on your own. But we're going to be reading Daniel 12 verse uh, verse seven, and then we're going to skip ahead to verses 11 through 12. And um, and I'll tell you, I, I usually go back and forth between the King James version and the uh, the NET, and the reason is because there's no copyright on those, and so uh, I don't have to jump through hoops in order to use them. Um, so uh, also, uh, I'll mention real quick too, if we do get into some Dead Sea Scrolls stuff, I am using this translation here, the Dead Sea Scrolls translated. This is the second edition by uh, Florentino Garcia Martinez because um, the translator, uh, Mr. Martinez, was kind enough to give me permission to use this translation. So uh, big thank you to him um, and... Uh, so it, it, that that's the translation I'm using, but there's several translations out there. I suggest, uh, there's like three or four that I'll switch back and forth between. So I suggest using a lot of different translations to try to, you know, pick up the, pick up what's being said. Um, but anyway, okay. So Daniel 12, uh, starting in verse seven, then we're going to skip ahead to 11 and 12. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river 
when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, times, and an half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And from the time, this is verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a 2,290 days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,300 and 5 and 30 days. All right, so in that passage, we have three intervals of time mentioned. Um, and those intervals of time have a uh, pretty much established kind of mainstream interpretation. So those intervals with how they're typically interpreted are as such. So you have time times and a half. That's usually understood as three and a half literal years. We're going to show in a minute why that's not correct, but that's usually how it's uh, understood. You have um, a thousand two hundred and ninety days. That's uh, one thousand two hundred and ninety literal days. Um, then the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. So that's one thousand three hundred and thirty-five literal days. That's typically how all that's understood. Now, when we see what the Hebrew is in Daniel twelve seven, um, we're we're going to want to interpret time times and a half a little differently. That word is uh, actually moed. Uh, Moedim would be the plural. It refers to the Moedim cycle of the festivals. Um, so you have a festival cycle. Now, while it's true, like one Moedim cycle would equal one calendar year, but if you have a half, a half of a Moedim cycle doesn't necessarily equal um, six months, you know, because you can have uh, and also I want to make mention that we're going to be using the Moedim cycle list, the festival list, um, from the temple scroll, um, from the temple scroll and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason is because it appears to be more complete. What we can piece together from the Bible, from the book of Leviticus and things, it uh, shows seven um, festivals, so seven Moedim. But the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about these extra that we've looked at before here. Um, so we have other videos on that, but there, there's others such as uh, first fruits of new wine, first fruits of new oil, and the wood offering, and um, and, and a couple others. So it does appear that there are um, that there are seven uh, understood as seven, or not seven. Um, it, it appears that there's twelve. Excuse me. Uh, instead of seven, if we go with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a lot of that we can find from the temple scroll it's in it's in other places as well but we can get that from the temple the temple scroll uh so if you're brand new to that uh here's the list of 12 i'll just read them real quick so you have nissan one which is the head of the year that's new year's that's the spring day of remembrance that's the first uh festival um nissan 14 is passover nissan 15 through 21 is unleavened bread nissan 26 is first fruits of barley er uh, 14 is uh, Pentecost of three is first fruits of new wine. Alul two is first fruits of new oil. Alul 23 through 28 is the wood offering. Tishrei one is trumpets or the fall day of remembrance. Tishrei 10 is day of atonement. Tishrei 15 through 22 is tabernacles. Um, so what's interesting is only those last three are fall festivals. Uh, so, you know, three quarters of those are uh, spring and summer, and then only the last three are actually um, fall feasts. So 
But anyway, uh, so when we use that list, there's uh, there's a list of 12 there. And where a half of a Moedim cycle ends would depend on where it starts. So if we started at the beginning of the year, um, and if, if this list does actually reflect the correct number of festival days, one half of a Moedim cycle would only bring us to Sivan uh 15, Pentecost, and that's only the third month of the year. So you can have a half of a Moedim cycle that only is only three months. So if you started there, three and a half um, Moedim, uh, it wouldn't be three and a half years. It would be three years and, and about three months, um, or like two, two and a half months or something like that. Uh, so e even if we counted Pentecost as inclusive within a half of a Moedim cycle, we would come to Av 3, First Fruits of New Wine, which occurs on the third day of the fifth month. So what we have described in Daniel 12.7, it's not a three and a half calendar year cycle, but it's a three and a half Moedim cycle. It it's roughly, depending where you start and end, it, it is roughly three and a half years, but it's not exact. It could be three years and three months. You, you know, there, there's different ways to look at it. Um, now, we'll see a parallel usage of these words in uh, the book of Revelation, which is also in uh, chapter 12. Uh, this is verse 14 from the KJV. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time. Uh, from the face of the serpent. So in Greek, time, times, uh, that kind of stuff. In Greek, from that, from Revelation, it's translated from uh, kairos, which just like moed can mean a, a season or relating back to these moedim cycles. So um, both of these passages are talking about moedim cycles. And they're mo most likely describing the same moedim cycle that concludes Daniel's 70th week. Now, another reason that I like the Temple Scrolls 12, list of 12, is uh, because when we have a half a Moedim cycle, how do you split seven into half? You know, now now some of the some of the festivals are multiple days long, so you might say, well, you split it halfway in one day. So how do you how do you split that in half? You know, you can't really have half of seven. It would be three sevenths or four sevenths. So the 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 time times and half a time doesn't really work. Uh, very well with uh, a list of seven festivals. So I think the, I think the 12 uh, fits better. Um, now we also have some interesting things that we can note from Daniel 12, 11 about the 1290 days, the 1290 days. Uh, that verse actually proves that the final half of Daniel's 70th week is not exactly three and a half calendar years, but it's a little bit longer. Now there's no known calendar from the time of Daniel's writing that can accommodate uh, 1,290 days into three and a half years. And believe me, I've looked. Um, if you work out the math, dividing 1290 by uh, 3.5, it, equal, it equals roughly uh, 368.58, meaning to make that, or you know, you could round that up to 368.6, but to make that three and a half calendar year you know, work each calendar year would have to consist of a little bit more than 368 days or 368 in the leap days, some, you know, at some point. But, uh, and you'd have to have a leap day every couple of years or something. It, it would be weird. There's no calendar that works like that. Um, even more, the, the number of months don't add up correctly because if you divide, uh, 1290 days, you know, 1290 days in total by 30, you know, 30 days in a month, uh, especially according to the Essene calendar, they have 30 days in a month, that equals 43. 
But we have mention of 42, not 43 months in the prophetic timeline of the Bible from Revelation 11, 2 and 13, 5, which we will be looking at uh, a little bit later. But um, th this tells us that we must not be dealing with a three and a half year cycle. It, it can't be. Um, but it, it, it's most likely a, it has to be a Moedim cycle. That's what it says in the original languages. And that would accommodate all of these numbers. And I'll, I'll show you how. Now, since we know that we have 1,290 literal days and three and a half Moedim cycles to work with, we need to find a festival day that we can start a 1,290-day count and end on another festival day. We know that there are uh, three full Moedim cycles, and those will add up to a uh, to, to full calendar years, uh, because each each Moedim cycle is one calendar year, uh, because you start and stop on the same day, you, you you begin and end on the same exact day. So that would you know one Moedim cycle would be one calendar year. So if all it said was three Moedim cycles, that is three calendar years. But the cycle doesn't necessarily correlate to half a year because there's different spans of time in between all these festivals. So we need to find two festival days um, that can accommodate these numbers. So the easiest way to do this so you're not counting, you know, literal 1,290 days uh, is just to recognize that the three years will be three full calendar years. Um, so if we use the Essene calendar, then we're going to go with a 364-day count for each year, uh, and we'll we'll multiply multiply that by three, you know, to compensate for the three full Moedim cycles, and then we arrive at 1,092. So we can disregard the 1,092. Uh, so we'll subtract that from our total number of days, 1290, in order to find out how long our half a Moedim cycle must be, which comes to 198. So what we need to find are two festival days that are 198 days apart to see when the 1290 days, you know, may begin and end. So additionally, to fulfill this half of a Moedim cycle, we need to find two uh, festivals that have four full festivals in between them. Um, so, you know, you, you have the beginning festival, you count down two, three, four, you count down four, and then the next festival, that has to be the next one. So, because uh, you need six in total to to be a half. You know, if we're looking at a, a list of 12, then you need six in total to be a half. So it has to accommodate that. Because um, one half of a Moedim cycle is six festivals. So we need to find a festival. We need to be able to count four festival days after, and the next one should be our sixth thereby completing the half of a full Moedim cycle. Um, and that Moedim cycle needs to be 198 days. Um, and it needs to be 42 months. So we, we have we have a lot, you know, we have a lot. Uh, but thankfully, I've done the work for you. Um, and I can kind of take you through some of my process. So I originally started with the spring feasts because... If you have in the middle, roughly the middle of the tribulation, if you have uh, something happening in the spring, then you count three and a half years this way. Um, that would be, you know, the beginning. And then you count three and a half this way to the end. That would be the end. But those would both be on the fall, right? So if we expect Jesus to come in the fall, then there should be um, 
a a a spring festival that we start with for the roughly middle of the we we should be able to start our 1290 count on a spring festival so i went through a bunch of these um i actually went through all of them but um on our scene calendar for that 1290 day count to work we need again we need to find two festivals that are um 198 days apart and if we start our 198 day count uh, which again, in total, would be you know the one the the twelve ninety after we add the three years back in, um, on one of the festivals of the first month. So, for example, let's try Passover. If we did that with Passover, we actually end the count in the eighth month, but there are no festival days in the eighth month, so it can't be Passover. Passover isn't going to work. If we tried to start our count on the spring day of remembrance, which is New Year's uh, in the spring, Nissan 1, we would arrive at Elul 18, which is nothing. There's no festival on that day, so that's not going to work. From Pentecost, uh, we arrive on the fifth day of Hanukkah, but Hanukkah is unlikely since Hanukkah did not exist during the time of uh, that, that the book of Daniel was being written. There was no Hanukkah, so that's, that's kind of unlikely. Plus, it's on the fifth day uh, of, of, the, of the series. Um, now, so you can do that with all the spring, the spring feasts and find that none of those work. So that means that the tribulation does not begin and Jesus Christ does not come back in the fall. So if you do it with the fall feasts in the middle, if you try it with the fall feast, that would mean the beginning and the end of the tribulation would be in the spring. That goes against some tradition, but just for, just to do it, let's see. So from, um... From the Feast of Trumpets, 198 days later, lands on the third day of Unleavened Bread. So that's a possibility. Um, Unleavened Bread is also the sixth festival day after Trumpets, so that would qualify as half of a Moedim cycle. Um, but again, we, it's a little weird because we, we have it in the middle of a... We have it in the middle, so would that be exactly three and a half, or would that be like three and... You know, a little bit more than a half. So, uh, so that that's that's a little weird. It, it seems like it'd be better if it landed on the first day of of if it had to be one of these multi-day things. Um, but that 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 might be something. Now, if we start on the final day of the wood offering, uh, which again is you know we don't know if we can do that. Start in the middle or near the end of a festival, but if we do that, we arrive at Passover 198 days later, and Passover is the sixth festival, uh, the sixth festival after the wood offering. So that's a possibility. Now, while those are possible, um, I didn't really like them as possibilities. Uh, neither of them really seem to fit, you know, exactly perfect in the way that we might expect. I suppose if we were using, um, like I said before, if we were using a list of seven festivals instead of 12, being that seven is an odd number, then maybe a half of a Moedim cycle would be halfway through one of these multi-day festivals. But using the Temple Scrolls list of 12, uh, it would seem that, you know, 12 being an even number, that we need to deal with full festivals here. It's got to be six full festivals, not partway in between. So given that, it seems like it'd be more exact for the count to land on the first day of a festival. Um, so I kept looking, and I found out that there's good news, though it might not be what we would typically expect if we think Jesus is coming back in the fall. So after searching through all the possibilities, there, as far as I could tell, there, there seems to be only two festivals that are 198 days apart, the, and the latter is, is sixth from the former, thereby completing the half of a Moedim cycle. The Day of Atonement, and then the following First Fruits of Barley. 
Those are the only two that I could find that actually works. If the abomination of desolation happens in the fall, this would mean um, that the beginning of the tribulation and return of Christ seven years later would actually occur in the spring. Now, again, that does go against tradition a bit, but when we think about that in light of what these festivals represent, the Day of Atonement and First Fruits of Barley seem to be just perfect, perfect candidates uh, for what prophetically occurs on those days. So um, remember that this is the final part of the tribulation period. This is not exactly in the... Um, uh, a middle of the tribulation it's it's roughly in the middle so we're talking about the second half but half isn't like an exact word it's roughly half it begins uh this, this great tribulation period this last half ish of the the tribulation it begins with the setting up of the abomination of desolation uh the day of atonement would be a perfect day for that to occur. And I never really thought about this before until uh, I started doing the math. But the Day of Atonement is the day that the temple is supposed to be cleansed. So it would make sense if there's a third temple built by that time that this would be the day that the Antichrist decides to desecrate the temple. And it also fits because this is the day that the Jewish people of Israel will finally discover that they've been betrayed again. Just like the actions of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes thousands of years prior, a couple thousand years prior, depending when this is going to happen. But that would be the time for Israel to atone and finally begin to accept the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Day of Atonement would be perfect for that. Um, we also know from... Uh is the length of time that the abomination of desolation is set up. So how will it be taken down? You know, presumably by the return of Jesus Christ himself. Um, now... We, I, I don't remember if I've done a video on this. Uh, I can do a brief review, um, but the first fruits of barley, let me see if I can find my notes on that. Um, because the first fruits of barley actually correlate with the resurrection of Jesus in a really interesting way. And if I can find my notes on that real quick, it, w it might be worth going through some of that. So what we need to realize is there's actually two different calendars being used. Um, there's two different calendars being used in the Gospels. John is uh, referencing the uh, lunar calendar. And he, he's doing that, that, that. You know he's doing that because he says... Feast of the Jews, you know, he says that stuff because he's talking about the Pharisee calendar. He's talking about uh, the the kind of uh, more pagan um, lunar calendar, whereas the other three, the other three use the other three use the solar calendar uh I, i'm i'm so sorry i think i i think i might have found it let me just breeze through here for yeah we can we can go through okay I'll, I'll just go through the whole thing so if you stuck with me this long you're about to get rewarded for that because this is really cool so th this does connect with the the first fruits of barley so uh it, it would help us to understand what happened on that day uh, and why this would actually be a very good candidate for the day <clears throat> 
that the Antichrist is defeated or, or that the abomination of desolation is done away with. Who does that? Jesus does that at his return, return in the spring. Um, Jesus actually did return in the spring once already before, so we have precedent for this. Uh, but let's look at um, the idea of the multiple ascensions of Jesus. Th this will help us understand what happened on the day of barley, so the first fruits of barley. So um, when we look on the Essenes uh, solar calendar and then look back to John's description of Jesus' resurrection, we, we learn something really cool here. So John 20, verse 1 says, Now very early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. Uh, so that establishes that John is describing events that occurred the Sunday after the crucifixion, which on our Dead Sea Scroll calendar would be Nisan 19. This is the fifth day of unleavened bread. So a little later, we read John 20, 15 through 20. Now, this has caused a lot of confusion in people, but it's really cool what actually goes on. So um, uh, there, in short, what we're getting at is Jesus actually ascended to heaven multiple times. Oh, and I'm reading from the NET. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Because she thought he was the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, uh, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus replied, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Okay, that's going to be important. Uh, Go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told them what Jesus had said to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. All right, now there's a few points that we need to keep in mind from these passages. So as we stated before, uh, these events occur on Sunday, Nisan 19. Now, in the morning, Mary sees Jesus, and at that time, Jesus tells Mary not to touch him, or the ESV and others say cling to him, But uh, and he says this because he has not yet ascended to the Father. So during the evening of that same day, Jesus greets the disciples and shows them his hands and his side. Now, notice here, it does not say that the disciples touched him, uh, only that they saw him. There, there's no bodily contact that we're aware of anywhere in this passage uh, during the events that occurred on Sunday, Nisan 19. Now, as you may have already guessed, we do read of bodily contact a little bit later. And this is where things get really interesting. So the Gospel of John continues uh, in verse 26 through 28 of the same chapter. So right after where we left off, John 20, 26 through 28 says, Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So he did He did this whole thing again. And he said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and I will, uh, and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. So what, what do we have here? On Sunday, Nisan 19, Jesus told Mary not to touch him, and as far as we know, did not invite or allow the disciples to touch him either. Eight days later, Jesus personally invites Thomas to touch his hands and his side. So what's the significance there? If we look at our Dead Sea Scroll calendar, we can see that Monday, Nisan 27, is eight days after that Sunday, Nissan 19. Uh, if you want to look at this calendar yourself, you can go to dsscalendar.org. Uh, that is Dr. Ken Johnson's work. It's, it's amazing. But on Nissan 19, Jesus cannot be touched because he had not yet ascended to the Father. 
On Nisan 27, the day after first fruits of barley, Jesus could be touched, which means he, um, it, it must mean that he'd already ascended to the Father, but we know that Jesus' final ascension had not yet taken place because he's still there with the disciples. So could it be that there were actually two ascensions of Jesus? Now, uh, there's a whole study here um, about what Jesus was doing during that time, and we could go through that. I'm wondering if it... Yeah, let's go through it. It's not that long. Um, it's from the book of Numbers. Um but we read about a sin offering and the purification laws for the red heifer sacrifice in chapter 19 of the book of Numbers. So uh, it's described as a sin offering. So Numbers 19, 8 through 10 says, uh, The one who burns it must wash his clothes in water and bathe himself in water. Uh, he will be ceremonially unclean until the evening. Then a man who is ceremonially clean must gather up the ashes of the red heifer and place them in a ceremonial uh, ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They must be kept for the community of the Israelites for use in the water of purification. It is a purification for sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer must wash his clothes and become ceremonially unclean until evening. This will be a permanent ordinance for the Israelites and uh, the resident foreigner who lives among them. And that, again, is Numbers 19, 8 through 10. NET. Uh, the book of Hebrews gives us a connection here to Jesus and that sin offering described in Numbers. Uh, Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood the high priest brings into the sanctuary as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Okay. Now we know Hebrews is referring specifically to the sin offering from Numbers 19 because ordinary sacrifices were slaughtered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And we get that from Leviticus 17.5. So the red heifer was to be slaughtered outside of the camp. And again, that's uh, Numbers 19.3. Now if we follow the author of Hebrews example here and equate Jesus with the red heifer, it begins to make sense what was going on during that first Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. So from Numbers, we read that the one who burns the the heifer and the clean one who gathers the ashes will be unclean until that evening. Jesus himself would fulfill both of those roles because he gave his own life. So that's from John 10, 18. He is certainly um, clean because he had no sin in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And he would be taking uh, the ashes of the heifer to deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. So what are the ashes and what is that clean place? We know Jesus uh, wasn't literally burned, he was crucified, but fire can represent purification. We get that from Malachi 3.2, which is why the red heifer was burned. The, a, a resurrection would definitely be a purification of a once-dead physical body. So scripture even compares the trials that we go through uh, as believers to fire that comes to refine us, then equates that with Jesus' suffering on the cross. We get that from 1 Peter 4.12. So most likely the ashes are the body of Christ and the clean place is in heaven with the Father. This is, uh, this is likely why he waited until the evening to come to his disciples. He was following the statute from Numbers. Also, we see that the uh, ashes are kept in a clean place for the water for impurity, uh, meaning the cleansing water for the sin offering, which is explained in the next passage that we'll look at. Uh, it, it's also interesting that be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So this means that this applies to both Jew and Gentile, just like the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the next passage, uh, num- uh, continuing on from Numbers, this is Numbers 19, 11 through 13. This explains the, the water. So it reads, Whoever touches the corpse of any person will be ceremonially unclean seven days. He must purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day, then he will not be clean. Anyone who touches the corpse of any dead person and does not purify himself defiles the temple uh, excuse me, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person must be cut off from Israel because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. He will be unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. Okay, so this explains why Mary and the disciples could not touch Jesus at first. It also explains uh, what he was do- doing during the week before that eighth day. So right after his resurrection and after Mary saw him, because uh, he said that he had not yet ascended, Uh, Jesus must have ascended to heaven in his previously dead body, which would be analogous to the ashes of the red heifer, to uh, make the, the, the water for impurity. So he couldn't come back to the camp, but had to stay outside the camp until he was clean in order to return. Um, so he then came back to earth. So that would be like the camp or Israel would be like the camp. Heaven would be the clean place. Um, or outside the camp. Uh, So then he came back to earth that evening, and at this time, he would be considered clean in terms of the passage in Numbers describing the water of impurity, so he could return to the camp, but he still needed to be cleansed in that water before he could be touched in accordance to Numbers 19, 11 through 13, because he literally touched someone else's dead body because... You know, but but because he took sin and death upon himself on the cross and actually became a dead body himself, so that that's how that works. So he he could return to the camp, but he still couldn't be touched. Now, after he saw the disciples, uh, he must have ascended again. So I guess that would be like three ascensions of Christ. Uh, he must have ascended again to cleanse himself on the third and seventh days with the water that he made, completing the sin offering as described in Numbers nineteen twelve. So that whole process. It's described in detail in Numbers 19, 14 through 19. Um, and there, there's a lot there. Maybe it's worth reading. We can read it. Uh, Numbers 19, 14 through 19 says, This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Uh, anyone who comes into the tent and all who are in the tent will be ceremonially unclean seven days. And every open container that was that has no covering fastened on it is unclean and whoever touches the body of someone killed with a sword in the open fields or the body of someone who died of natural causes or a human bone or a grave will be unclean seven days. For a ceremonially unclean person, you must take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin and pour fresh running water over them in a vessel. So Jesus would have been doing this kind of stuff in heaven, but it would have been using his his. Uh, his body. Then a ceremonially clean person must take hyssop, dip it in the uh, water and sprinkle it on the tent, on all its furnishings and on the people who were there or on the one who touched a bone or who was killed or who died or a grave. So this would have been Jesus himself. Um, and the clean person must sprinkle the unclean on the third day and the seventh day and On the seventh day, he must purify him, and then he must wash his clothes and bathe in the water, and he will be clean uh, in the evening. So that's probably when he got, like, his new new body. Um, Now, 
So that all would have happened in heaven. Now, um, it's also interesting to note in Numbers 19, 14 through 19, it says when someone, when someone dies in a tent, you know, one could certainly see that, say that Jesus died in a tent when we realize that Paul describes the human body as a tent in scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Um, but we know from Numbers that we take the third and the seventh days of cleansing as the actual third and seventh day of the week, you know, according to the calendar. So according to our Dead Sea Scroll calendar, we begin our count on Sunday as day one. And then we would have the third day of cleansing on Tuesday, literally the third day of the week, which is also the final day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's Nisan 21. And then the seventh day, um, on that following Sabbath, literally the seventh day of the week, Saturday, Nisan 25. So this would mean that the eighth day, when Jesus met the disciples of get, again, would have been Nisan 26, the first fruits of barley. First fruits of barley. That is when Jesus met the disciples again, uh, when he was in his resurrected body, he could be touched, all, all of that good stuff. Um, and that's probably why Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the dead. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 from the NET says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all shall die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So amazingly, as if that wasn't enough, the last day of unleavened bread is considered a high Sabbath because it's the seventh day of the festival throughout the entire year where there are two Sabbaths, one on the third day, Tuesday, and then one on the seventh day, Saturday. So we have two Sabbaths of cleansing lining up after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus returning to the disciples on uh, first fruits of barley, which points back to his resurrection elsewhere in scripture. Um, so that's clearly too much to be a coincidence. And that, that's why the disciples didn't see Jesus again until eight days after that first Sunday. He needed a full seven days to complete the cleansing ritual for the sin offering. Um, and uh, that's why he returned to the disciples in the first fruits of barley. It makes sense that he might return again on the first fruits of barley. And since that week leading up to the first fruits of barley all had to do with cleansing and stuff, before he returns, we know that there's a lot of battles. There might be another cleansing of the earth. Uh, so that's really interesting to think about, too. Uh, so that leads us to why first fruits of barley. That, that, that's why. So we looked at Day of Atonement, why that would fit for the abomination of desolation. And then um, the, the, the next cycle back around to the spring, why first fruits of barley would be a perfect day uh, for Christ to return. Um, now, remember, when Christ returns, there's like a lot of stuff that he does. So this might not be the day of his return, like his, his entrance to earth from heaven. Um, this might be the day that he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. Because uh, I, I do believe that those are two different events that happen some number of days apart. Because um, Revelation says that he arrives on a horse. Uh, Zechariah, I think it's Zechariah, says that uh, he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And there's a lot of prophetic things that happen in between those uh, two things. Now, we can add um, um, one more piece. Uh, but but just, just to kind of drive that home... Um, 
that is the first fruits of barley. That was the, the day that Jesus showed up to his disciples in his resurrected body. So would it not make sense for Jesus to return to Jerusalem where his Jewish brothers are on that very same day? Um, now, we have another piece of evidence uh, for this to show why this works. Revelation 11.2 and 13.5 state, uh, I'll start with 11.2, it says, But do not measure the outer courtyard of the temple, leave it out, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they trample it on the holy city for 42 months. So it's Revelation 11.2. Then we also have um, 13.5, which says, The beast was given a mouth speaking proud words and blasphemies, and he was permitted to exercise ruling authority for 42 months. So, if the Antichrist begins his true reign of terror on the Day of Atonement, then we can count 42 months to see when it will end. And amazingly, uh, fitting in beautifully with what we've already discovered, uh, 42 months after Tishrei, the month of the Day of Atonement, is Nisan, the, uh, the first month of the year. So, Nisan is the month of the first fruits of barley. So, if that interpretation is correct, it means that Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives on first fruits of barley, uh, which is 42 months after the Antichrist begins his uh, rule by setting up the abomination of desolation, his, his, his rule from the, the temple, from Israel, by setting up uh, the abomination of desolation on the Day of Atonement in the month of uh, Tishrei. So, um, that is fascinating. And you, you know what? Let me see where we're at here. Um, oh, let's see. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to go to members only because we have to talk about the 1,335 day count because uh, there's some amazing stuff with that as well. And I wonder where that leaves us. We might have to do a couple different videos. But anyway, we're going to go over to um, members only. So please go to dailyrenegade.com, get a membership today. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about. There's so much more with this. We have to talk about the 1335 day account. We have to try to piece together all of this stuff. We have to see how the fall feasts are actually fulfilled in the tribulation, which is amazing, uh, and why Jesus comes back uh, for another round of the spring uh, festivals. There's, there's a lot there. Head on over to dailyrenegade.com and please get a membership today. It's only $10 a month or $100 a year. For the time being, we do have a seven-day trial uh, if you want to try it before you buy it. But if you already know that you love us and want to support us, then um, that is the place to go, uh, dailyrenegade.com. Also, if you care to help um, Nathan, my son, who uh, has, uh, well, he's in remission, thank God, but he still is going through a lot of treatments. He's also has some pretty severe um, mental health issues that we're dealing with. And at some point when when Christina and I are ready, we'll talk more about what all that is. But um, if you want to help, a lot of people have been asking how they can do that. Um, there's a link in the description below. The best place is just to PayPal uh, me. So it's just paypal.me slash Josh Peck Disclosure. That's the easiest way to do it. There's, a, a, again, a link to that. All those donations will go right to him. So uh, that would be a big help. Um, okay, so if you are a member, hang on the line. Uh, everybody else, thank you so much. Head on over to dailyrenegade.com, and we will see you there. Take care. God bless.